We're on the record. I'm Sheila Cast. Good morning. Grandparents read aloud, helping grandchildren practice their words. Parents bid goodnight with a bedtime story. A child sneaks a few more chapters under the covers by flashlight. A story can be a wonderful gift this holiday season. We get some ideas for grown-ups later in the show. Right now, with us by Zoom with recommendations for young readers is Connie Strittmatter, the Youth and Family Engagement Manager for the Baltimore County Public Library. Welcome, Connie. Thank you, Sheila. Goodnight Moon is the quintessential picture book. You've picked a new book that plays on a similar theme, Goodnight Little Bookstore. Yeah, I really love this book. Um, Goodnight Moon, like you said, is a, a book that so many families uh, have with their children. Often it's a, uh, a book that people will purchase for maybe a baby shower or something like that. Um, but Goodnight Little Bookstore is a delightful story about a bookstore owner who is saying goodnight to all the different pieces of the bookstore. And it's it, it looks like an independent downtown bookstore, the type of place that I know I love going to anytime I'm visiting a new city. I love going into a bookstore and um, seeing what uh, that city's bookstores have to offer. So this one kind of runs down all the different things that you might see in that bookstore, even down to uh, the bookstore cat, which I'm always looking for <laughs> when I walk into one. <laughs> and that's by Amy Cherix. When when you're selecting books for children who don't know how to read yet, what what do you look for? Well, it's really important to look for uh, vibrant and engaging illustrations. Um, those illustrations provide the context for children to uh, see and understand uh, the words that are coming off of the page. So uh, we love books like Goodnight Little Bookstore because the illustrations are um, are beautifully uh, drawn in here and they uh, very clearly depict the simple text on the page. So uh, as a parent or a caregiver or a teacher, when you're reading the book to the child, um, they can make those clear associations between the words and the pictures that they're seeing. Yeah, I can see how that's important. Um, next up, Mac Barnett and John Classen share their spin on The Three Billy Goats Gruff. In an interview, mm -hmm. Barnett said, quote, the good guys don't get much stage time. The goats file by one by one, but we spend most of our time with the villain, close quote. So tell us about the villain. Uh, so the villain in this book, of course, is the troll. Um, if if anybody out there is not familiar with the story, the three billy goats gruff, um, these three billy goats are working their way across a bridge, and each one of them is confronted by uh, the troll under the bridge who does not want them to pass. And in, in this version of the story, um, this troll is uh, a delight for anybody who likes uh maybe something a little closer to gross out humor. Um, he is just, you know, scraggly and he, you know, picks earwax out of his ear and uh, he's just a lot of fun. Um, and I, I particularly love Mac Barnett and John Classen because their style, they're one of my favorite duos making picture books today. Uh, their style is so deadpan. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you you look at the, the illustrations, you look at the characters, and um, they're just staring right back at you with that deadpan stare. It's very dry humor, uh, very cringy at times. Uh, so it's just a lot of fun for, I think, somebody of any age. 
Cookie Chronicles is a series by Maryland authors, Matthew Swanson and Robbie Bear. What's the significance of the cookie? Oh, so the cookie is a fortune cookie. And Ben, who's our main character, uh, he is a he is a, a funny kid who takes things a little bit too literally. And when he reads the fortune uh, in the cookie, it kind of takes him on this like spiraling path of um, of trying to solve the problem that the cookie seems to have presented to him. And it's a series. So each one's a little different with a, a slightly different problem to solve. It's the perfect kind of book for kids who are into Diary of a Wimpy Kid or Dogman. Um, those are series that many children are familiar with, and I'm sure many parents and caregivers are as well. Uh, so if, if if somebody out there is looking for something new, this is a perfect book for them. Give me an example of one or two of the fortunes that Ben tries to follow. Oh, gosh. Um, so one of the fortunes in the first book, it's actually... Um, called Ben Yakoyama and the Cookie of Doom. Oh, so this, yes, exactly. It's it's quite, it's a very uh, like an intense title, the Cookie of Doom. So he reads this fortune and basically what ends up happening is he is convinced that this is going to be the last day of his life because the fortune says, live each day as if it were your last. Oh. So it it gives him this sense of dread because he's read it so literally. Um, and he reads the fortune. Um, he's he's terrified, but it also kind of gives him this sense of inspiration maybe. So he actually creates a bucket list and he decides he has to live each day like it was his last. Uh, so it, it, it creates a, a kind of a fun premise for this, uh, for these hijinks, this, these adventures to take place. This is On the Record. I'm Sheila Cass speaking with Connie Strittmatter of the Baltimore County Public Library. She's sharing recommendations of recently published children's books from read-alouds to chapter books. This next book uses poetry to explore the experiences of an Indian-American girl growing up in the Midwest. Tell us about Red, White, and Whole. Red, White, and Whole. Uh, it's by Rajani LaRocca. And as you mentioned, it is told through poetry, it's told in verse, uh, which is one of my favorite ways uh, to uh, to write a story for, I think, really any age, but especially for uh, those kind of middle grades. Uh, it's a really beautiful way to get deep and, and difficult feelings across on the page. Red, White, and Whole, of course, as you mentioned, it's about an Indian American girl living in the Midwest in the 1980s. And she's really struggling with the difficulties of, you know, these cultural differences that she's experiencing. There's one poem um, specifically early in the book about her mother who was asked to stop wearing uh, a bindi on her head because it, on her forehead, because it was making uh, people at work uncomfortable. And so our main character, she, uh, is experiencing these difficulties both for herself and her family. But it's it's also a book about 
her dreams here in the United States. Red, white, and whole does not only represent, um, you know, the red, white, and blue of the United States, but it also represents uh, her dreams of becoming a doctor. Uh, the red and the white are references to red and white blood cells, um, which is related to an ailment that uh, one of her family members back in India has. And she has a dream of being able to take care of her family by becoming a doctor here in the United States. Listeners can meet uh, Rajane LaRocca this spring. She'll be visiting a few local libraries to talk about Red, White, and Whole on March 11th. In Black Brother, Black Brother by Jewel Parker Rhodes, Dante and Trey navigate the challenges of colorism and racial bias. Set the scene for us. Dante and Trey, they're brothers. Both of them, they attend the same school. It's a prep school. Dante has darker skin and Trey has lighter skin. They are both black. Uh, And within the book, Dante experiences significantly more racial bias. Um, He, in fact, is framed for an incident that creates a lot of problems for him. And it really does all rest on the color of his skin. Um, So the book really explores the way that that a lot of children, unfortunately, and and adults, of course, but children are seeing these things play out in their own schools. It's a difficult topic, just like red, white, and whole, deep and heavy, but uh, something that's really, unfortunately, very relevant uh, still today and um, that a lot of kids are dealing with. And Jewel Parker Rhodes will join the Baltimore County Public Library on January 24th at 7 p.m. for a Zoom event. Let's turn to your selections for teen readers. Mm -hmm. There's an iconic photograph from the 1968 Mexico City Summer Olympics. Standing on the medal podium, Tommy Smith, the gold medal winner in the 200-meter sprint, and John Carlos, the bronze medal winner, bow their heads and raise their fists in protest of racial injustice against African Americans. Five decades later, Smith has co-authored the memoir, Victory Stand, Raising My Fist for Justice. What happened after this protest? Well, it's it's a really sad story immediately after the protest, um, but the book does give us that kind of long-term victory as as the, the as the book is titled. Immediately after um, they were asked to leave the Olympics, so they uh, neither of them got to finish the events that they were slated to run in. Tommy Smith was fired from his job. Um, he struggled to find work. Really, it, it was a moment that changed his life uh, very quickly. Like I said, though, in the long term, uh, the book does talk about that he he did find opportunity after that. And in fact, he, he went on to uh, get his PhD to become a coach in a variety of sports. And so he he did find success. And over time, um, their protest did become one seen positively in our country. But at the time, it, he and John Carlos were not treated well at all by this country when they came back. And Smith's memoir is in the form of a graphic novel. What what does that add to the story? What I would say it adds, it, it adds... Um, an element of empathy that sometimes text can't fully get across. Um, this book, it, it really sets the scene leading up to that 1968 Olympics, um, leading up to it in a way that shows 
why it is that Tommy Smith and John Carlos, you know, demonstrated in the way they did. It's a really important way to tell that story through through images. And as we wrap up a romantic comedy with a holiday theme, <laughs> tell us about How to Excavate a Heart by Jake Maya Arlo. Oh, yes. So this one, um, uh, we've talked about some heavy topics here, but this is a really fun one. So um, Shawnee is our main character. Uh, she starts off her winter break uh, in, with a car accident, and she actually runs into a person. And of course, you know, this is a terrible way to, to start. The person's okay. Like, you know, it's it's not, it's not tragic. Um, she gets dumped by her girlfriend, Shawnee does. But then she runs back and she's taking a walk uh, and she runs back into the very person who she hit with her car uh, and she hits it off with her. So it's it's a really kind of light and uh, bubbly version of a book recommendation compared to some of the other ones that we've talked about today. What a range you've shared with us. I'm really grateful. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Connie. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. Connie Strittmatter is the Youth and Family Engagement Manager for the Baltimore County Public Library. At the On the Record page at WIPR.org, we have a link to her list of recommendations, including a few titles we did not get to this morning, as well as the Baltimore County Public Library's calendar of events. Short break now on the record. When we're back, book ideas for adults. They're so good you might sneak a peek while you're wrapping your gifts. I'm Sheila Cass. Stay with us. Welcome back to On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. Wrapped in shiny paper or careworn with notes scrawled in the margins, books are gifts that give again and again. They offer a window into the heart of the author and can open our minds to a different view of the world. Carla Dupre is executive director of City Lit Project, which nurtures the culture of literature in Baltimore and throughout Maryland. She joins on the record from time to time to share her reading recommendations. Welcome back to the show, Carla. Thank you so much for having me, Sheila. Let's kick things off with a book about the natural world and our connection to it. Yes, my first choice is a book not new to the world, but a book that promises to remain on our radar radar for all of the things. It speaks to our substantial relationship with the earth, and that's braiding sweetgrass. Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teaching of Plants by Indigenous Botanist Robin Kimmerer. A 2022 Guggenheim Fellow and a scientist who happens to be a writer of rare grace. She gently reminds us we have forgotten how to hear the voices of non-human living things flourishing around us right before our eyes. She challenges the reader by asking what reciprocal role can we play in the generosity of the land, what we take and what we offer as gifts. Readers return to this book due to its treasured wisdom and the responsibility we have as people of this world and what we owe the earth. If you keep thinking about owning this book that speaks to restoration, let this serve as a reminder. This author creates a culture, one of gratitude and recognition, examining all of the elements of nature and our renewed connection with the land. For anyone remotely interested in plants in the natural world, as many of us are, through these pandemic years, pressing our fingers to take refuge in the soil, 
To read Braiding Sweetgrass is much like a spiritual pathway that persuades you to do something with the earth. Tend to it, honor it, but by no means ignore its fruitful offerings. Here's a short quote from the book. Even a wounded world is feeding us. Even a wounded world holds us, giving us moments of wonder and joy. Next, you have chosen a book of essays titled Soil, the Story of a Black Mother's Garden. Yes, by Camille Dungy. The pandemic has us returning to gardening in common and unique ways. I've got my own share of houseplants, and I'm loving the curtain of green light growing in my living room. I'm also thinking of the proliferation of gardening sites on Instagram and podcasts, like the ever-popular plant and interior stylist Hilton Carter and the gardening store B. Willow. But a book that's on my radar that speaks to gardening from an untold lens is Soil by poet, scholar, and Guggenheim fellow Camille Dungy, who diversifies her garden to reflect her heritage. This author of four collections of poetry turns to prose in what is called a seminal work created when she confronted seven years of restrictions on what she could and could not plant in her own garden in a predominantly white community of Fort Collins, Colorado. This new work provokes a kind of environmental justice, and I quote, Dungy employs the various plants, herbs, vegetables, and flowers she grows in her garden as metaphor, a treatise for how homogeneity threatens the future of our planet and why cultivating diverse and intersectional language and our national discourse about the environment is the best means of protecting it. And from that to a short story collection, a Jamaican family striving to build a better life in Miami in If I Survive You by Jonathan Escoffery. Tell us about that. Oh boy, I'm really excited for this writer whose debut collection confronts and collides with our assumptions about identity, race, and living in the States as second-generation immigrants. The title alone is provocative and telling as we dive into the wreck by way of linked stories of a working-class Jamaican family, the momentum of their lives waving like banners of hope as each grapple with climbing that ladder called life in America, climbing as many of us know without a safety net. With humor and caution and nuanced characters like a novel and stories, it reminds us often of the pain and trauma of what it takes to live in this country in a city like Miami. It's a tender, loving gut punch of a book. This is On the Record on WIPR's Sheila Cass speaking with Carla Dupre, executive director of City Lit Project. She's sharing a range of book suggestions, poetry, fiction, and more. In poetry, you've selected floaters. Who does the title refer to? Yes, Floaters by Martina Spada. You may not recall, but the term Floaters was used by a member of the Border Patrol Facebook group in response to a widely circulated photo of the intertwined bodies of a father and his daughter, face down in the waters of the Rio Grande. They drowned trying to cross the border into the United States. Someone in that group questioned the validity of that photo since, and I quote, he had never seen floaters like this. I imagine all the things that happened inside that made Martin land his courage on that image and refuse to silence their names, Oscar Alberto Martinez Ramirez and his daughter Valeria. And as is the way of poets, he wanted us to say their names out loud, his way of humanizing the dehumanized. This book includes a poem, Letter to My Father, where Spada recounts the devastation Hurricane Maria did to Puerto Rico, a place where his father, also an artist and activist, lived in his hometown, which was destroyed in the infamous response of Trump throwing paper towels to clean up the mess. 
totally dishonoring the people and the culture at a time of unspeakable suffering and hardship. The only thing better than sitting quietly reading Espada's poems is hearing him read them, to which I say alabanza Martin, all praises for this accomplished work. Baltimore author Rafael Alvarez paints a portrait of resilience in Don't Count Me Out. Who is Alvarez following in this book? Oh, gosh. Rafael Alvarez takes on the story of Bruce White. We're talking about um, an opioid crisis that haunts this country in unimaginable ways, reaching rural communities as much as urban ones. Bruce White, whose drug use began as early as elementary school and his incredible and improbable road to recovery. There are tons of books about addiction, yet it remains a topic we discuss behind closed doors. Families suffer in silence and withdraw, refusing to openly discuss it. Shame or helplessness. Families from well-heeled homes and low-income ones wrestle with that same nasty beast of an illness. Bruce White's story is told in the accomplished hands of journalist Alvarez. He doesn't sugarcoat the severity of Bruce's addiction, the lengths in which he was willing to go to feed it, despite the fact that he came from a life of opportunities, how far down he fell, and how harrowing an experience it got to be. One reviewer openly claimed for those struggling with addiction and for their loved ones, the story of Bruce White should bring terror because it shows just how far a person can fall. But the bold, honest truth of this story of recovery and resilience is Bruce found his way back from a criminal life, ruled by his addiction. Three decades later, and the improbable becomes the likely miracle when a man reinvents himself into someone who gives back, a lost soul who, after a journey through the depths of his addiction, finds his way home, an unlikely but complete transformation who now serves as a rehabilitation leader and the treatment of addicts. It's clear we need stories like this that take us to the bottom of how it could happen to any one of us. But the promise to build your way back to whole is something we all need to hear. Helen Elaine Lee is the Director of Women's and Gender Studies and Professor of Fiction Writing at MIT. Her latest novel is Pomegranate, about a woman's struggle to rebuild her life after prison. Why is Pomegranate on your list? Well, you know, as this country wrestles with addiction, which often leads to incarceration, we're going to see more stories about how we manage this terrain of the untold story from multiple lens. But what happens when it's a woman, a mother who is left behind two children while she serves time? This new novel by Helen Elaine Lee returns with a work of fiction introducing us to Renita Atwater. Renita is wrapping up her four-year sentence for opioid possession at Oak Hills Correctional Center. With three years of sobriety, she is determined to stay clean and regain custody of her two children from her aunts who have been raising them. My name is Renita and I'm an addict, she has said again and again at NA meetings. But who else is she? She gains her freedom, but in the process, leaves behind the group of women who helped get her through, including her lover, Maxine, who inspired her to imagine herself and the world differently. Lee takes our hands and guides us through Anita's life, returning to the outside, where she walks that deliberate balance, weighing the life she lived against the one she comes home to, armed with the need to get her children back and to recover the whole of herself and to nurse those unhealed wounds. And to start the new year off with some self-improvement, you recommend How We Heal by Alex L. Tell, tell us briefly about that. 
Yes, How We Heal and Cover Your Power and Set Yourself Free. It's a treasure of a book by a Maryland New York Times bestselling author. She's a certified breathwork coach and a restorative writing teacher who has a huge following on Instagram. And I'll be honest, in this holiday season, I like to recognize those experiencing loss of a loved one, those who are struggling with issues that have undone them or reduced them in large and small ways. And those who find the holidays emotionally stressful, the push and pull that comes with being present. And I'll make myself vulnerable here, Sheila. Those of us who have a history of loss during this festive time of year, who live between playing joyful Christmas carols and needing our way through memories of a lost loved one, in my case, my mother and brother, and all of the many ways this year people and situations have tried to break us, our spirits, our will, and our fortitude. Books like these serve to assist us in that journey to healing what hurts. And here are a few quotes from this particular book. I was tired of suffocating and trying to be everything to everyone and nothing to myself. Self-abandonment isn't an act of love. It's a sign of weak boundaries, and it can lead to burnout and self-destruction. Here's another one. Showing up on the page is your promise to yourself that you will stop shrinking to fit into the lives of others and into boxes that do not belong to you. It's a wonderful book just as a gift and then also as a gift to yourself. Wow, there's a lot here, Carla. I, I appreciate your sharing all this with us. Thank you. I appreciate being here with you too, Sheila. Thank you so much. Carla Dupre is executive director of the City Lit Project. At the On the Record page at WYPR.org, we have links to all the books we discussed and a few more, and to NPR's Books We Love list. I'm Sheila Cast. Glad you've joined us on the record. Come back tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs>